Hello, and welcome to Follow the Woo podcast, where each week I, Fenelon Kush, will guide you on a journey into the land of the woo. We're going to investigate witchcraft, meditations, the paranormal and supernatural, alien and fey encounters, gurus, shamanism, and, and, and all the woo. So hold on to your butt. This just might be the weirdest part of your day. Hello, humans. I hope your Mercury and retrograde is going smoothly. I've already been tongue-tied in more than one Zoom interview this week and have had various technological issues. So, yeehaw, it is here. Hold on to your butts. Mercury went into retrograde on Monday the 22nd and will be in retrograde until October 18th. So if communication is bajiggity or your devices aren't working, you can blame it on Mercury. This week, I decided to chat with Stephanie Bingham again from episode 22, When the Woo Follows You. I asked her to come on the show again for a couple of reasons. One, she has been synchronistically and oddly involved in helping me improve my magical and psychic abilities. And two, she happens to have a unique outlook on and relationship with ritual magic and chaos magic, which are two topics that keep coming up in random conversations lately. So, in the spirit of following the woo, wherever it takes me, I am following this chaos ritual magic lead. If you haven't listened to episode 22, you may want to check it out, but Stephanie does give a little recap of her early experiences with the paranormal and her ritual experiences with her psychic roommate in college. Stephanie is a historian, paranormal researcher and investigator, psychic, and all-around solid, weird human. We casually chat about chaos magic, ritual magic, being a solo practitioner, the wicked alchemy of neophyte power, my current spiritual awakening, personal gnosis, past lives, the inhuman entities that live in her home, and more. But let's talk about Aleister Crowley for a beat. I mentioned in this episode that Aleister Crowley often wanted to bypass the conscious mind and traditional magical workings by doing drugs or participating in intense sex magic. That is true. But for the record, he was also more well-known for his extremely long, elaborate, and complex rituals. These kinds of rituals are considered ceremonial magic or high magic, an extension of the broader ritual magic, which, like I said, Stephanie and I discuss. So Crowley was a wild card, and he'll probably keep cropping up periodically in many episodes to come. For those of you who don't know who he is, Alistair Crowley was an English occultist, ceremonial magician, and very unusual dude. He founded the religion of Thelema, identifying himself as the prophet entrusted with guiding humanity into the Aeon of Horus in the early 20th century. In the context of Crowley's Thelma, magic with a K is a term used to differentiate the occult from performance magic, and is defined as, quote, the science and art of causing change to occur in conformity with will, unquote. Stephanie and I tackle that concept a bit as well. The reason that I bring up Crowley in this conversation is because of his influence in the world of magicians, occultists, and other magical practitioners. I had been researching him again, so he was at the top of my mind, but there are loads and loads and loads of other books, teachers, and methods out there that you should research if you're wanting to get into this world of magic. For the record, neither Stephanie or I follow Crowley's works or religion. My personal advice regarding him is... If you want to learn about magic, get to know his jam, but not too intimately. I mean, I like to differentiate the occult from performance magic, so I use magic with a K because it makes sense to me. When you're figuring out your craft, take what works for you and use it. But remember, no one person has all the answers. Create your own craft. And keep in mind, Crowley pretty much butted heads with everyone who he came in contact with, he tried to fake his own death just for fun. He famously said he couldn't go more than 48 hours without having sex. He had basically a harem of women he called his Scarlet Women. And Ron L. Hubbard looked to him for inspiration for his very 
nefarious Scientology cult, so I'm not condoning his lifestyle or even his works. But he was insanely fascinating and smart, and I do think he figured out some ways to pierce the veil to the other side. So that's my Aleister Crowley note because he has been coming up a lot lately, and I don't want you to think, oh, I just worship Aleister Crowley and he's my numero uno. Anyway, Stephanie and I jump right into a recap of the first ghost she met when she was a baby and her relationship with ghosts and inhuman entities in general. It is time again for the woo. I saw my first ghost when I was about a year and a half old. It was a gentleman in the family who had recently died. We were staying at my grandparents' house. And now I'd never met this man, but I was sleeping in a playpen. And this man came in through the window, sort of picked me up. We were talking as much as someone that age talks and then he put me back down and when I woke up I told my mom about it you know man came through the window this is what happened and this kept happening the first time she was just like oh yeah sure pat me on the head send me on my way it wasn't until it had happened several times that she finally found a group family photo and was like can you point out or is the person you're seeing in the picture here and I picked out the relative who'd recently died and that's when they knew that I was seeing things but they didn't tell me I was seeing things at that point So I was well into an elementary school before I realized that I was seeing things other people didn't see. (laughs) You didn't know a ghost was a ghost. (laughs) I did not know a ghost. I thought they were just people that appeared in weird places. And so part of the reason why you chose woo topics in undergrad and graduate school as well is because you wanted to figure it out, right? I wanted to give myself a historical basis. I wanted to prove to myself that I was not the first person to have gone through this. I wanted to know that other people had experienced the exact same things that I was going through. And I thought that I could find that if I looked to sort of those famous historical people who are dealing with ghosts on a regular basis, the voodoo priestesses, the spiritualist mediums, things like that. It was me looking for context is really what all of it was. And it sounds like, based off of our many previous talks now, that you found some context. In undergrad, was that when you had the roommate and you y'all went on crazy adventures, or was that graduate school? That was undergrad. Well, graduate school too, but we met in undergrad, and she told me that her room was haunted. She could not sleep in her room. Her roommate would not sleep in her room, and that I should come back with her so that we could get the ghost out of her room. And that's how that started. The reason I wanted to recap this is because I think it's important to know how you know what we're about to talk about. You had already had a number of paranormal experiences growing up before you even got to college. When did you start doing rituals yourself? Because that's what we're talking about here. Ceremonial, ritual, magic. Like, when did you start? Did you start with baby ones prior to college? Did you and your roommate do them together in college? It depends on how you define a ritual. If you look at the weird things I was doing as a youngish child, I was doing strange things that looking back, I'm like, yeah, that was, that was me poking magic and just seeing what sort of things I could make happen by will or by small formulas. But it's nothing at the time that I would have said, I am doing magic. Nothing like that. The first time that I got into truly sort of formalized, let's literally go by the book magic was in college. It was an undergrad. She wanted something that had a book behind it specifically where I was just a little more, I'm willing to poke things and see what happens. She wanted something that was a little more contextualized for her. Don't blame her. So we did a lot of very strange rituals. You and your, your roommate. So what kind of books are we talking here? Were you reading Aleister Crowley books? I had read Aleister Crowley at this point. Some of Aleister Crowley's works. A lot of his is very sort of dense and kind of a lot to get through. Yeah, it's tough. She hadn't. So she was finding like the witchcraft for dummies, literally that book I remember her having. (laughs) It's a thing. And uh, stuff by like Constantinos and just a lot of that magic for teens category that was sort of popping off at the time. So she had a lot of those kind of books and she was wanting to do, you know, like this is how we do protection and this is how we get rid of spirits. Like that was a big one for her was wanting to see if she could manipulate the spirits through ritualized magic. 
And of course, I'm sitting over here saying, well, if you want them to do something, why don't we just make them do it? You know, this way works. And she's like, no, I want to do it this way. So there was lots of sort of trial and error of what happens if we follow the instructions. Can we bake a cake or do we summon a demon? (laughs) Both. (laughs) Basically, yes. I think that's interesting that you brought that difference up between the two of you, because when I dug back into Aleister Crowley specifically, a lot of what he talked about was fuck the long form way. Let's just do like quick sex magic. Or he was really into, we don't have to get to heightened consciousness levels via like the Zen Buddhist path. That takes too long. Let's just do drugs. You know, and let's do drugs. Let's fuck. Let's, you know, I think he encouraged one of his wives of which there were at least seven. I don't know if they were all wives, but there were seven of his harem or whatever the fuck it was. I think he encouraged her to like fuck a goat as part of a ceremony. That sounds right. I don't remember that, but that sounds like something that he would have done. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a really interesting distinction between how formulaic do you need to go or do you just sort of go for the thing. And from talking to you, I know that you're just like, let's just do it. I have the power. I know I have the power. Let's just do the thing. I'm very instinctual about it. So literally having the formula in front of me just kind of makes me twitch a little bit. (laughs) Uh, It's like, why? I know what the outcome is going to be. So why do I need all of this fluff? Mm. And that brings me to chaos magic, which a lot of my listeners have been asking about what the fuck does that mean? That's exactly what you're talking about, right? Can you just define that and how it works for you? So to me, chaos magic is literally stripping down magical practices to the bare bones of it, taking out all the ephemera, all of the items, all of the extra stuff, all of the chanting, anything that is outside of myself and myself alone. Like what can I do as a single person magically with my will, my intent, and my energy? If it gets beyond that, in my mind, it is some form of ritual magic, but that's always sort of been a safety net for me because if I can do the magic myself, by myself, I can create it and make it do something, then if something were to go wrong, I also have the power to fix it because in my mind, if it's something that needs more than just me to do it, that is a larger working. That is something that is bigger and needs to be very carefully considered and very, very careful about just doing it in general. So it's, it's sort of the threshold of magic for me. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. And you call this will work, right? And I think Mm -hmm. it's, you're not the only one who calls it that. That's what you prefer to call it Mm -hmm. as, as opposed to chaos magic. I've gotten a lot of pushback over the years about just chaos magic in general. A lot of sort of gatekeepy people I've met of, oh no, it can't be real chaos magic. And it's like, really guys, sure. Cool call it whatever you want. I'm still going to do it. You know, the sort of the fundamental or like the intrinsic component for chaos magic, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I need the rituals still. I lean on them more than you do. But I think the intrinsic component is this unwavering belief in the ability that you can do it. Yeah. Is that correct? For me, that is a thing. And there's nothing wrong with the formulaic magic. It is just not what rings true for me. It is not what what seems normal, what feels comfortable for me. So for me, it is very much a matter of, I know I can do it. There is no question. And that level of confidence is apparently not quite as common as I seem to think it is. No, it's certainly not. You told me once in one of our calls, you're giving me sort of like psychic advice for a second. And it was like, you've been too normal you know, you've been trying to be too normal. And the reason I bring that up is because being quote unquote normal is leaning into the world that doesn't encourage you to believe that you have the ability to do magic, right? It's, Mm -hmm. it's, you're constantly doubting yourself. Oh, don't get me started on capitalism. You're constantly feeling like you're unworthy and you need a bunch of things to make you whole, that's so far away from a fundamental, again, unwavering belief that you are a very powerful being. I have to have more practice. You know, I believe it, but it's like, I I don't have that full, like hundred percent belief. I think a lot of that belief goes back specifically to my mother. I never really thought a lot about it at the time, but she used to play the song Superbird for me when I was little. 
she had it on one of the little tiny old fashioned records and she played on the record player. And the whole premise of the song is that the child can fly, like legitimately fly. And the parents know that the child can fly. And as soon as they tell the child that they can't fly, the child loses that ability. And the sort of chorus of the song is, it's not enough to spoil your dreams, fly Superbird. And she would play this song for me over and over again. And I think that was very much her approach for things. She knew that I was having experiences that weren't normal, but she did not ever tell me that what was happening was abnormal, that it was weird that it was even different than anything else that was happening around me. She let me experience all of that and grow as I was going to grow in that. And she kept an eye to make sure I wasn't getting super freaked out by it, but she let it happen and let me come into my own that way. And I think that's where a lot of that just sort of, no, really, I can do it, I promise, comes Mm -hmm. from. You had that sort of early fertile ground that your mom was kind of cultivating for you. And then did you have to experiment with your roommate in college enough to be like, oh, I need to go back to the will work, to the chaos magic, because this is kind of annoying. Was that a necessary step? I think for me, more the step was realizing what of what I was doing was quote unquote normal. And what of what I was doing was some form of like instinctual, just I'm going to do it. It took me a long time, like a disturbingly long time to realize how far of normal I actually was. But by the time I was in high school, I had a pretty firm grasp that there were things going on in my life that were not normal. So I had started looking for resources in my small town in Kentucky at that point, which... (laughs) Right? Right? That's very much what you get there. There's not a lot of stuff going on. So I was very limited to what I could find, but I had started realizing that I was doing a form of magic a couple years before I went to college, but I still hadn't really realized how much of what I had been doing since I was a child could be considered a form of magic. So it was just untangling that mess. Can you give some examples? Because you're saying like, oh, I figured out that I was doing this magic. What did that look like? Were you reading people's minds? Were you able to move things? Were you able to conjure things? Were you able to, what was it? A little bit of everything. I had a very sort of odd way about me and not so much in the chaos magic, but just in a, I was a weird kid. I could tell you things before they would happen. My mom would ask me, what'd you get on that test? And I could tell her down to the exact percentage what I got on the test. Like it was just a weird game that she would do. And I never realized until later that that was matching up so well and was not a normal thing that one should know. Things like that, getting ghosts specifically in human spirits to do what I wanted them to do. The first sort of experience I had with that, I was still in elementary school and it was the man who used to walk down the hallway. He killed two kids and he's a bloody mess. He liked to terrorize me when I was little. And it was the first time that I figured out that if I pushed against him. I had it explained to me by another ghost. It was, it was an odd situation, but basically if I pushed against him energetically that I could force him out and I could force him to essentially get out of the house. And the first time that I was able to do that, I was in elementary school. That's not normal. Now, some people will call that chaos magic. Some people will just say that's weird, but there was so much strangeness going on at that time, getting things to happen that I wanted to happen and just There's one encounter that I remember rather vividly that happened in middle school where one of the girls came up to me, not entirely sure why. And she was like, I want to know what it would be like to be in a cat's body. Can I leave this body and get in that cat's body? And we basically did a guided meditation, sort of, we were walking around in the middle of a school dance of how she should leave that body and hop into the other body. What the fuck? Did it work? She felt it? Did she get freaked out? Wait, tell me what happened. She never spoke to me again after that. You freaked her out. At the dance, though? What were you, like, in the corner with the music on? Where were you? Oh, we were in the cafeteria. They had snacks. The cookies were very important in middle school, so you hung out in the cafeteria where the cookies were. So not in the auditorium where the dance was going on. It was in this other area. There was a curtain separating them. In high school, I had have a queer mom and it was 
2000 to 2004 was not a time for queer people. And I was so confused in general, but I was also like a very gregarious person and straight girls would make out with me secretly in like secret closets and things like that. It's like they found me and they were like, oh, it's safe to to experiment with her. And I feel like that's kind of what people did with you with the weird shit. You're not wrong. That's exactly it. They were like, I know she's kind of weird. And I feel like everybody's a little curious about making out with the same gender. I feel like everybody's a little curious about the woo. So they just sort of like came and, and found you. And that's not the first story you've told me where the person didn't want to talk to you again afterward, right? Yeah. You freaked him out. Yeah. And that goes for the making out with girls too. You know, a lot of times they pretend like I didn't exist. Yeah. I find that my threshold for what is weird is abnormally high. If chaos magic is your jam and it's just sort of you knowing you can do it and you accessing that when you wish, then do you need teachers? Did you ever need teachers? And if you did, what did they teach you and how did it help you? I feel like everyone can grow from a teacher. Teachers grow from teachers. It's just a matter of what you're going to get from each person, whether that is patience or being methodical or learning to make sure that there's no unintended side effects. Or even someone was kind enough to point out to me that you should try not to be that weird around them, maybe like pull it back a couple notches so you don't freak out the poor little whoever is asking whatever strange questions you mean. But I think that everybody has something useful. It might not be the technique they are trying to teach you, but something about their methodology is oftentimes very helpful to me, like watching them work through what they're doing, not Mm. the written down process itself, but how they go about it, how they protect themselves energetically and just how they move things. As an empath, I tend to mimic And so I do something similar. Like if I see someone doing something energetically, I'm like, oh, okay, I I can feel that what they're doing. sounds like that's kind of what you're doing. You almost watch someone and you're, you're led by curiosity. It's not necessarily like, oh, I now need to learn exactly what they did. It's just, it feels like you're just pulling little pieces and adding it to what you already have. Exactly. It's very eclectic and specifically watching how the energy flows is helpful to me. Like they're saying these words or they're going through these actions to get this final outcome, but what does their magic do as they are doing it? Mm. Like, how does it move? How does it flow? How does it coalesce? Is it bigger? Is it smaller? Is it shinier? What's it doing? Would you recommend chaos magic or will work for the like average person? Or would you say maybe leaning on the ritual is better? I think every person needs to make their own decisions as far as that goes. I was very comfortable with it because I had no idea what I was doing. Like I just dove in head first, not realizing I saw dead people. So, you know, I was weird like that. There's going to be other weird people that fit my pattern and agree that you just sort of poke it. I think the safer, the smarter, the better idea is to at least do your reading ahead of time get a good foundational basis in the text for whatever form of magic that you are intending to poke at. There's even books on chaos magic. There's all sorts of literature out there. And I think having that basis of what other people who've gone before you have done, maybe learn from their mistakes so you don't, you know, scare the poor little kids at the middle school dance (laughs) is useful, but everybody's going to do what they're going to do. Big difference between you and most people is that you're not afraid. If an inhuman entity does enter your space, I think about like the TikTok Moldavite thing, these people who are accidentally inviting in weird energies and entities. If that were to happen to you, you just access another part of your magic and get rid of it. You say that like I don't have one that lives with me. Exactly. (laughs) Which you've mentioned before. Is it just one? There's multiples, but one of them officially lives with me. Another one is just sort of taking up space in my cat's bed. The one is the funny one that you told me about when I did that Bigfoot hunt, right? Like it's just sort of like a little dog almost. Lizard. Oh, a lizard. Okay. A dog lizard. In my mind, it was a dog. I don't know why. Very much a dog personality, but I've always seen that one in particular as a lizard. And if we're counting him, there's more than two. I don't even think to count him as one because he has literally been with me since I was born. Like as long as I remember, that thing has been around. So he is just sort of so ingrained in my orbit that I don't even register him as 
something external to myself at this point. So listeners, (laughs) there you go. (laughs) She doesn't register an inhuman entity that's in her home because there's so many of them and many of them have been there for so long that she doesn't even see them as that separate from her. So unless you're feeling like that, maybe you should stick to the books and stick to the rituals. And if you have a coven, follow your priestess or priest, whatever, because this is a different realm. 100%. There'll be one or two weirdos like me out there. I think the listeners would be interested to hear just like a tiny bit more about your relationship with these entities in your home or in your space. Can you see them? What do they look like? What do they feel like? Do they bother you? So I've seen things my entire life. The older I got, the better I got at essentially turning it down. Because when I was little, especially, I could not tell a difference between something that was living, dead. My brain does not parse the difference. So I would think that they were real. I could touch them. I remember touching some and they were solid. Now, I've had ghosts later touch me and they were also solid, but it's rarer now. And it's generally on their end more so than on my end. Over time, I learned to tune it out or turn it down or ignore it in a way that allows me to function in sort of normal society as a functional adult, supposedly. (laughs) It's really hard. (laughs) It really is. So I have rules for the ghosts in my house. Basically, the ground rules are you don't go in the bedroom. You do not touch me physically unless someone is in immediate physical danger and you can't mess with a cat. Like those are the deal breakers for me. And other than that, I've had these things with me that I need to function when I'm at home. So I don't sort of turn it back up to where I'm seeing, seeing them all the time, but I can constantly feel their energies moving. But like the inhumans you're talking about that I have, the one lizard dog as you're referring to him, (laughs) plays with the cat, has always played with the cat. And they will sort of chase one another and run around and then end up kind of curling up in little balls and going to sleep. He thinks he's creepy. He thinks he can sneak up on people. He just is adorably dumb. (laughs) Yeah. If that makes sense. What do they call them? A A himbo? A himbo. Yeah. A himbo. Very much that. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Uh, The other one is one that I picked up when I was out and about one day and it was very childlike, not human, very small, very large eyes. It doesn't have hair in the traditional sense. It's very strange to see. Thin, wiry. Its legs are too long for its body. It's an odd looking little creature, but it was afraid of something where we were at the time. And it was trying to hide and it decided that it could hide with me. And I was going to leave that day and it was essentially scared that it was going to have to go back from what it was hiding from. And I was like, well, if you follow the rules, you can come here and it's now taken over my cat's bed. Well, how does your cat feel about that? Uh, She hasn't been in there in over a year now. She has like a little tent bed and she used to love it. And now she will not go in it, but she'll sit right outside of it and just stare into it. So (laughs) she knows she's like, she knows is this bitch in my bed? Yup. Where do you think he's from? Or I'm sorry, he, I'm saying, is it non-gendered? It doesn't seem to leave one way or the other. I do not know with that one. It doesn't talk in the way that even most inhumans will talk with sort of emotions and feelings. It's a very strange thing that I haven't encountered specifically like that before, but I basically gave it a base of operation. It can come and go as it pleases, but most of the time it prefers to just kind of chill out here. And it is sitting within 10 feet of, I've got marbles that belong to a child who had died. I found them out of like a estate sale kind of thing. And that child and that thing get along real well, which I find very strange, but the two of them seem to sort of be a little pair now. So you brought the spirit of the child home when you purchased the marbles? The child was there with his marbles and little thing with his little fingers in his mouth. His name is either Billy or Willie. I'm not sure. He talks with his fingers in his mouth. So I don't know, but he doesn't really as he's dead. He just wants to play with his marbles. He's super sweet and just chills out. So he's one of the ones that can stay as long as he wants and go whenever he feels like it. And he understands the rules. Yes. Yeah. So again, listeners, if you if you don't have a working relationship with some inhuman entities, then stick to the books, okay? The books are generally good resources. 
Well, this brings me to this idea of personal gnosis, which is problematic for a lot of people because it's your sort of spiritual understanding of things and you didn't access a a book or a teacher. You got it from the divine, the woo, The the, the ether. Yeah, exactly. And so for you, it seems like that, well, you have accessed the books, so you have done that as well, but you also rely heavily on your personal gnosis and your magic practice, right? Absolutely. I've done a lot of reading. I've done a lot of research. I have research degrees literally in these topics. I just, I needed to dig, I needed to find, but it was for me always justifying and giving context to my own experiences. I look at it and I take what I can from it, but I realize that the situations and the experiences of the people writing these books are not 100% the same as my own. So why should I look at something written in the 16th century when someone's talking about random magical practices then and say, this is the perfect way to do magic in 2021, you know, like Mm -hmm. there's some time difference there. Just a bit. (laughs) Fine. When it comes to things like past life regressions or retrievals, even personal gnosis can rub people the wrong way because they're like, what the fuck? You don't know what you're talking about. It has to come from some like scientific concrete place. The reason I bring that up is because you do some of your own past life work retrieval. Would you call it retrieval or regression or both? I would probably call it regression myself, but whatever, you know, it's, they're just words. Yeah. So regression, meaning you're in some way reliving it to a certain extent, whether it's visually, auditorily, right. Mm -hmm. And, and retrieval, just usually having somebody else access it for you. So of course you would be more interested in regression because you're doing your own shit generally, but you have had other people guide you through that process, correct? I have. I have done that on a couple of occasions when I've been with other people who wanted to go to like big group regressions and did not want to do it alone. All the regressions that I've done with other people have been large group regressions in very public areas. People are like, you know, I'm I'm having all these feelings and all these experiences. And I'm like, yep, I remember dying that time. And I find that that's very much the way I sort of come out of these things is, yeah, that happened. And just go on about my day. I find that a lot in those classes, people like to sit and I understand you want to experience and you want to feel what has happened, but there's only so much feeling and knowing of the past that's healthy in my mind. And I find that there's a tiny bit of wallowing mm-hmm. and I kind of wonder how much of that becomes performative in those group spaces. A hundred percent. Yeah. And actually the people who do that, the performative ones are the ones that make people more suspicious of the personal gnosis because it's like you are full of shit it seems like with the performative ones there might be some truth to it but it's not the full truth it's being exaggerated it's being spread out a little bit sometimes i've seen that and then you see the ones that are remembering things and there's one i'm thinking of in particular that they were having this memory and they were telling you about they've done this drawing of this place that they remembered And I recognize that place that they remembered as a level in a video game I recently played. Like I'm really good with maps and it was literally the level of this game. And he's explaining what was happening in this place. And I was like, do I want to tell him that? And it was true for him. Mm -hmm. Like what was happening there was very true. It was not something that he was making up, but he was accessing something that was filtering itself through the lens of this video game. And I don't even think he's played the game. Because I brought up, you know, asked him if he played the game in a different context later. He's like, no, I've never heard of it. And I was like, oh, okay. So then I got to thinking, is he remembering something that the graphics designer or the person designing the game was also remembering and putting into the game itself? And if there was some sort of shared history there or something. This all gets really hairy because... It could have been so many different things. It could have been one of his guides was like, hey, let's give him this image because this will help him work through whatever he needs to work through. Or it could have been some like repressed shit where like he was in the room with somebody who was playing that game and didn't even realize that that was the game that you asked him about, but it was in his subconscious. So I I do understand why people are suspicious of a personal gnosis. But then at the same time, I think it's super important for people to own their power as magical practitioners. And one of the ways of doing that is believing that you have access to wisdom beyond this physical body. 
Yeah, absolutely. And for him, even though I knew that that was coming from somewhere else, it gave him that confidence to do the magic for the rest of the weekend that we were doing. It was a workshops and all. And he excelled through the rest of the weekend after he had that experience and that memory came to him. So it did not matter if it was true to me or not. All that mattered was that it was true for him in that moment. Exactly. And that's where it gets hard for people to digest in like the scientific communities, especially. They're just like, what? (laughs) That makes zero sense. Let's go back to ritualistic magic, like what you were doing with your roommate. What kind of stuff were you doing? Were you doing those long, drawn out, complex rituals that take hours? My roommate was notorious for her short attention span. Like not not the longest attention span unless she is like in a project, which is fine. So no, we weren't doing crazy long things, but things that needed in her mind, all of this ephemera to go with it. It needed crystals, it needed herbs, it needed athmes, it needed all sorts of offerings and stuff to go with it. So the rituals themselves were not more than probably 30, 45 minutes long. But the like week moving up towards whatever one she decided that she needed to do was a lot of going to the store and getting the thing or going to the creek and getting the rock and the water and (laughs) all the things, all the things. I have to say with my order that I was previously with, when they would do like the complex rituals that took hours and they weren't even like complex, complex because Aleister Crowley stuff, oof. You, this take days sometimes. I'm like, yeah. no, my feet hurt. But even when we did like like two or three hour rituals, a lot of times I was like, do we have to do all this? Do we have to do like every single thing? But the other thing is it was an order. So there were a lot of people. So when there's yeah. that many people, everybody wants to participate. So that takes more time. And then you have varying degrees of abilities, I guess I'll say. So there's some people who are like really, really wanting to experience something. And so they kind of milk their moment. So their moment takes a really long time. It's very time consuming. And I've always found that the more people that you add to a ritual, the more ritual you need in a ritual, if that makes sense. Like... You need the words, you need the props, you need all the things that sort of get all of the people on the exact same level and the exact same train to make sure the energy is going the right way and all of that. So yeah, the more people you add, the more ephemera you add with them. Yeah, I I agree. Because the more people you have, the more potentially volatile energy you can have, right? Because what happened to Sarah today at work? You know, is she bringing that with her? Did so-and-so just break up with their boyfriend? All that stuff is in the circle because a lot of them are neophytes. So that means nobody knows how to ground or center or like be prepared to go into a magical mode, so to speak, you know, to get yourself in that space where the conscious mind is is sort of bypassed a little bit. Mm -hmm. They can invite things in that were not necessarily on the agenda for the original ritual. Yeah, yeah, and that can be not fun. What kind of advice would you give to solo practitioners? Make sure you know your boundaries. And I realize that that is very hard when you're starting. And that is why I think if you are solo and you're doing it just by yourself, you need to start with very, very simple things and go very slowly. Because the last thing you want to do is get in over your head. I've been doing magical weird shit since I was a kid. I have a weird woo mom. But just yesterday, I had a past life regression hypnosis session for, it was like almost three hours. But afterward, I had to eat a bowl of pasta. I had to go for a walk. I had to watch Chopped, you know? Like I had to watch a stupid fucking cooking show to get myself back in this world. Because I, what I see a lot with beginner practitioners is that you want to experience the magic so much, but sometimes you're energetically not ready because coming back to, I don't know, I'll just call it like the Kardashians reality that we live in. That's so different. That vibration is so different than where you just were. It is. And I think for me, it's been interesting to watch how people go through that particular time period where they are going through that sort of magical awakening and they're realizing what they can do, what they can't do. 
And there's a time before they really, truly understand what's happening where that wicked alchemy just gets right and they do crazy shit. <laughs> like they do things that people don't realize that they can do. And then you watch, they'll scare themselves and suddenly they can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And that is when, in my mind, you go from being a baby witch to a fully fledged adult or at least teenage scared of what you can do, which, or respectful of what you can do, which, which mm-hmm. I find to be very interesting because if they could do it before they were afraid, you know, they can do it after, but mm-hmm. they don't. That's a great point. My mom was super into the woo, got into some very hairy places. And I think that happened to her. I think she just, and all of a sudden she was just like, I'll keep calling it Kardashian world because I feel like that's like the perfect title for where we live on an everyday basis. But she lives there now, you know, and with this podcast, she started to open that back up again. She has those abilities, like you said, they're there. They've always been there. They were there before she was afraid. They were there after she was afraid. I don't want to put words in her mouth. I don't know if she was terrified or whatever, but I do think that the woo got overwhelming for her. Yeah. And it does. It can be. You know. The listeners know to a certain extent that I'm going through an awakening process. And I think of it kind of like (laughs) that scene when Kristen Stewart becomes a vampire in Twilight. (laughs) She's like, can beat everybody in arm wrestling. And she's just kind of all over the place. Now, the difference is that she's fearless. She's a vampire now. She's not scared of shit. But imagine having the ability to do a bunch of stuff because you opened up really, really fast and being scared shitless. That's a bad combo. Yes. Yeah. And the faster that you try to get to the thing without taking the necessary steps, the more potential there is for that to happen. The bigger the boom will be. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So boundaries and not just for solo practitioners, you'd say that for everybody. Absolutely. If you are doing magic in a group and you are uncomfortable for any reason, peace out, leave, just go. If you're uncomfortable, it's not the group for you. There are other groups out there. You can find them. They're everywhere. They're in Kentucky. They're everywhere. I'm convinced of this. If I can find them here, they're they're everywhere. It, there's actually a lot in Kentucky. I did some research. Yes. Surprising. Very surprising and very underground. Yeah. Now I remember in our last episode, When the Woo Follows You, you mentioned that you were trying to do homework and y'all did some ritual real quick. And then the power went out in the whole campus. I remember that one. That one's pretty good. Sure. Was there another one that sticks out? There was one we were doing because she wanted to talk to a certain entity. So we go through the whole process. We get the whole thing going. Nothing happens for a minute. She's got that sort of sad face. So I'm just like, all right, fine. Let's get the ghost here and pull the thing in. The thing arrives. And as soon as it gets there, she freaks out. I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want it. And I'm just like, (laughs) (laughs) all this for that. Great. So I find that to be sort of emblematic of a lot of what happens, especially with people who are just getting used to it. You ask for something, it happens, and then, nope, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, that happens in for paranormal investigators all the time, or like rookie paranormal, not even rookies. Jesus, the ones on TV, they're like, let's do it. Let's let's call them in. And then everybody shits their pants. (laughs) Like, what did you think? You wanted the ghost to talk. Now the ghost is talking and you're running. How rude. Yeah. Like, guys, you asked for this. Deal with it. You can make me jump. You can do it pretty easily, actually. But a dead thing is not generally going to do it. Yeah. I'm a jumpy person. I'm not rude, though. I I mean, and I don't want to, like, bag on any of the paranormal investigators. They all have their own lives and their own things. I don't want to say anything bad, but I feel like I would jump. I would freak out. And then I'd be like, okay, somebody hold my hand and let's just have a chat. You know, like we have to get to that point to where we can experience the other because it's here and it's coming in hot without freaking out. Just like accepting that it's here. I think of you as a canary in a coal mine, not exactly that metaphor, but kind of like you're in there and you're experiencing like, look, this is what's coming. This is what's already happening. Pretty soon you'll all at some point have 
a little bit of inability to do what I do. Maybe like you'll at least feel some impressions, maybe not, you know, tomorrow, but in a hundred years, 200 years, I don't know, maybe we'll all just be able to access different realms. I'll say. Yeah, I can definitely see that. It'd probably take a long ass time though. I think so. But then you see things like what you see happening on TikTok where people are taking all of the old legends and all of the old cryptids and monsters and they are going out and some of them are claiming to have true experiences and some people are admitting to faking them, but you're giving all of this energy to all of these things that have not had that level of energy directed towards them in such a long time. I'm wondering how many of those sort of ancient things that you're like, hey, what happens if we poke it? Yeah, like they've been napping for eons and were active in a way that we never have been as a species technologically. That's major focused energy. Exactly. Or if you look at sort of that American God style, like you are creating the gods of the past and the gods of the future. And when you forget them, they cease to exist. But when you remember them again, back they come. Like, dang, (laughs) that's some heavy (laughs) shit. (laughs) Like, is this the best idea, guys? Should we be out in the woods pretending to see things that are going to try and kill us? Like, is that a smart idea? Yeah, is that in our best interest? Yeah. What do you think is the purpose of your gifts? Why do you think you have them? I think I'm in a way that I am because I am meant to essentially act as a liaison between the ones that find me and the ones that are being dealt with. Like I find that a lot that I end up being sort of a middleman for dead people, not necessarily humans talking to humans, but the inhumans talking to other things there and just sort of being a safe place, a linchpin, something of that nature for them. And for some reason, the ones that I end up with that end up sort of resident end up being a bit more palatable to other people. So the people that I know, my friends, my family, people like that, that know what's here seem to be less freaked out by what is there. And it just seems to be taking that edge off slowly over time that yes, there is a dead thing in the corner. Yes, there might be an inhuman thing in the corner too. And that is no longer for them something that is terrifying. It just is something that is what it is, you know? Yeah. So it's like twofold. Partially you're a liaison among the entities to help communicate and ground in whatever way they need to be able to communicate with one another. Traffic control. Traffic control. Yeah. And then the other part is that you help people, myself included, become more comfortable with their abilities, their latent abilities, or just the idea of other dimensions or realms in general. Very much so. Let me just say full disclosure to the listeners here. Since I've met Stephanie virtually, my woo awakening process, we'll call it, has accelerated rapidly. Are you comfortable talking about this for a second? Yeah. I think this is something that's happened with you and other people as well, right? Like that you've almost, because of the vibration that you operate in, you've sort of instigated a rapid growth in others. Do I instigate that or are people that are attracted to the vibrations that you're calling them around me, are they just people who are ready for that awakening to happen? Ooh, good question. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it could be a combination of both. It could be imprints or whatever, but I do think there are different kinds of beings that people don't generally think about like placeholders. I think there's people on this planet who are just there to hold energy for the planet. That's what they do. Then there's other people who allow spiritual growth to happen more quickly. And we don't know the reasons for that. But how do you define yourself magically? Are you a pagan, a cultist? What words do you use? Does it matter? The words that I use to define myself depends on who I'm defining myself to. It depends on what they understand the words to mean. If I'm talking to a Christian, I'm not going to say I'm an occultist. That's a bad way of explaining that. If I'm talking to a pagan, I'm probably not going to say I'm a pagan. I might say I'm an eclectic, but I'm not going to say that I am a pagan because then the next question is, what's your pantheon? Not my bag. I fall somewhere between, I'm like an octopus with my toe in all of them. So eclectic is really the only one that makes any sort of logical sense. But if I say that to some people, they don't understand what I'm saying. So it's dependent on the audience I'm trying to relay the information to. That makes sense. I've realized that 
all of those terms are annoying for a lot of people. They're heavy terms. Yeah. And which is as well. I definitely try to change my vernacular and my, I guess, identity when I'm around certain people to an extent. I don't want to like disregard who I am. And I don't think you are either, but enough to where people don't freak out. Yeah. Yes. And I find that that's very helpful because if I do tell someone that I am pagan, they're first, oh, you're a witch or, oh, you're Wiccan. No, that's not that. And then you have to go into that long drawn out explanation of the differences between all of these words. Mm. And their eyes glaze over. Exactly. (laughs) And the Wiccan thing is weird in witchcraft, too, because when you tell someone you're a witch, they think automatically that you're a Wiccan. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of stuff with Wiccan philosophy that's problematic. And their history, absolutely. Yeah. But there's nothing good there. It is just not the path that is for me, you know, which gets very complicated. It's unfortunate. But I would say I agree with you. Like, I don't identify with the term eclectic, but I think that if you were to take a look at the way I do my practices, that's how I I would identify myself based off of what you just said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because you don't want to be stuck to one thing. No, I don't. That's very much against the way that I function. So can you paint a picture of you doing a solo ritual? And I use that term loosely. Let's say you're just doing a working, which is just a little bit of energy manipulation. What does it look like? Because you're not using earth, water, fire, air. You're not using, you know, the rock from the the creek. If someone has a secret camera in my house and they're watching me do a working, they're going to see me sitting either on the floor, generally on the floor or in a chair. And that's what they're going to see. Like, that's it. You might see me holding my hands in sort of a purposeful, like together, not like I'm praying, but like together. But that's all you're going to see. Externally, I don't do a lot because there's not a lot I need to do. All the work for things like that in my way of manipulating energy happens internally. I'm going to manipulate it, make it how I need it for whatever the goal is. That's the process for me. Now, if I'm doing like a house clearing or something else, it's going to be different. But just a general working, you'll see me sitting and that's it. (laughs) just sitting but you do use music though I do use music quite a lot it helps me focus so I will set something just to sort of shuffle and depending on the mood that I need that will depend on the music that is playing for whatever my goal is it doesn't matter to me what the music is once I'm in the right headspace once I am there I don't really even hear it anymore like I suppose I actually hear it but I don't register it as being there So when you're working with music like that, do you feel like it's what's helping you bypass your conscious mind so you can get into the space or are you just able to get there on your own? We were having a conversation about conscious mind and your subconscious thoughts today at work, you know, talking about all these background thoughts at all times and how your brain is always racing. And I'm like, that's not my experience. I will occasionally have background thoughts, but it's not a normal thing for me. So for me, the music is about the emotion. It is whatever it conjures to me emotionally is why that music is playing. That doesn't surprise me because we've been talking and I like to think of myself as a bit of a people connoisseur. Like I've had to be growing up in this lifetime. I I pick up people's energies very easily. And I do find that you're very different in that I can't hear a lot with you. Not that I can hear people's thoughts, but I can hear, I don't know how to explain it. It's sort of like the buzzing of the energy of their thinking. I can hear that. It's not like I can hear what they had for dinner or anything. Yours isn't like that. And sometimes I've been like, your brain is different. So when you sit down to do a meditation, clear your mind. Mm -hmm. Great. You try. No, I clear my mind. And then they keep talking about how, oh, that stray thought, just ignore it. And I was like, what stray thought? And you're like, I wish you wouldn't have said anything. Now I'm thinking about you. I'm like, what what stray thought? Am I missing one? Did you hear it? That's hard for me to sort of understand. Actually, I have met somebody similar to you in India. And I thought it was so annoying. I really did. I was like, how the fuck are you just sitting there and not thinking anything? Because I have to work really hard at it. If I have thoughts that I can't escape, it is something major. The rest of the time, if I am not actively poking at something in my brain, 
there might be like a background music track or something in there but other than that it's just sort of quiet yeah fuck you that's for me and most of my listeners (laughs) because damn i know for a fact after going to a number of meditation retreats i don't know why they call them retreats they're not relaxing but everybody there is like oh my god it's so hard to turn my mind off and like i said there's only one person i can think of who i met in meditation land that is similar to you in that way Actually, I've met others, but they've done extremely long, drawn out meditation practices for decades, you know, and now they're able to access it easily. I'm learning that it's not normal. I'm just trying to wrap my brain that that is an actual thing and not just like something that people say as sort of a euphemism. Like, yes, there's totally a thought there. Uh Uh-huh. I think for a long time, I thought that people were just kind of joking when they said that. You know, it'd be interesting is to give you my brain for (laughs) just an hour and then you give me yours. I wish we could do that because then you would be like, oh, fuck. Like, I can't function like this. You wouldn't be able to. I would 100% agree. If that is what is actually felt, I could not function. I do what I do because I have this very quiet, serene sort of black pool in my head that just is... (laughs) Cool and dark and quiet. It's quite nice. Sounds amazing. I'd want to keep your brain for longer, probably. You'd be like, give me my brain back. (laughs) I need that. Fuck Fen's brain. Well, I hope it's not discouraging for the majority of the humans on this planet because, you know, Stephanie is the weird one. I mean, not weird in a bad way, weird in a great way in that you are able to calm your mind so easily, so quickly. But it shouldn't discourage others because everybody has what they have to work with. And there's amazing workings that you can do with an overactive mind. Absolutely. Like my roommate's mind was very active all the time. And I always attribute it to her writing. She was always coming up with stories and coming up with plots and things like that. And because of that, she was very able to interact with energy in a way that I don't. The rituals, the prescribed rituals came very easy to her because that's the way her brain works. And it worked really well and really effectively for her nine times out of 10. Whereas if I'm doing them, it's just kind of a lot of extra stuff that sort of bogs me down. But you bring up a good point that we were talking earlier about, you know, if there's a ton of people in your order or in your ritual, it can cause more problems. Sometimes quantity over quality is not what you want. You want the quality. And so if you can get the combination of people right, the magic can be really, really potent. And if you get somebody like you with a still mind, with somebody who's got an overactive mind, who is also, you know, able to connect with you. I mean, there's other factors, Mm -hmm. but that could be really powerful. Absolutely. I find that just anything that complements works better for me in magic. I don't want someone whose magic works exactly like mine because that gets to be a lot real quick. But I find that complimenting sort of evens both out magically and makes it more functional and more malleable. Sorry, the end kind of cuts off there. That was an audio flub on my part. When Stephanie mentioned the Superbird song that her mom played for her over and over again, it made me think of my childhood. I was always obsessed with the idea of magic and would often ask my mom if magic was real. And her answer was always yes. Yes, if you believe it's real, it's real. And I would follow up with, but do you believe it's real? And she would always say, yes. So much like Stephanie's Superbird song, These brief but frequent conversations with my mom were tremendously influential in my life, and they still are. In fact, I believe full on that one of the main reasons I'm so curious and so willing to believe in the magical mysteries of the woo is because of my early belief in the existence of magic. One of my favorite movies when I was young was Hook, and I'm sure many of my millennial listeners have a fondness for this movie as well. My favorite scene that I would sometimes rewind and watch over and over again was when the Lost Boys and the confused adult Peter Pan, played by the impeccable Robin Williams, 
prepare for dinner after a long day of training. Remember, they're trying to get the adult Peter Pan to remember himself. He forgot that he's Peter Pan. And so they're training him. And adult Peter Pan is starving after this long, long day. But when he gets to the table, he sees that all the pots and bowls and platters of food are actually empty. And obviously, he's like, what the fuck? And the Lost Boys try to explain to him that he has to believe that the food is there for it to appear. He has to play. He has to pretend. He has to remember how to tap into his imagination. And then, and only then, will his intrinsic Peter Pan magic come back online. I love that scene. Because then they get into a big food fight. It's so good. It's like the moment that he gets it for a second. And that's not an uncommon theme in many of our most beloved stories. This notion is even echoed in the Bible when Jesus says, quote, Even the least among you can do all that I have done and even greater things. John chapter 14, verse 12. Now, I'm not super big into the Bible, but I took a Bible course in college because I wanted to be able to argue with people who had staunch Christian backgrounds. But the point is, the divine miracles that Jesus was able to perform, we too could perform. The only difference between he and the average person is that he believed with every rudiment of his being that he could perform said miracles. His awareness and understanding of himself within the context of our shared perceived reality and the cosmos at large was so broad and so heightened that he operated in an enlightened state. This is a tough one, though, right? Like, you could say, I believe I can walk on water. I believe I can turn water into wine. But just repeating that is not what creates a belief. If that were the only necessary component for these kinds of magical workings and miracles, the practice of reciting affirmations alone would yield far more results. Of course, affirmations can work, but they almost always have to be in tandem with a very, very unwavering belief that you already have established or added elements to amp up that magic, including emotions, visualization, essentially curating or creating new beliefs for yourself or generating new neural pathways for yourself. But this, of course, begs the question, so what creates belief then? And that's a whopper of a question because it's not just one thing that creates our beliefs. So here's a quote from the book, The Biochemistry of Belief. Beliefs originate from what we hear and keep on hearing from others ever since we were children. And even before that, the sources of beliefs include environment, events, knowledge, past experiences, visualization, etc. One of the biggest misconceptions people often harbor is that belief is a static intellectual concept. Nothing can be farther from the truth. Beliefs are a choice. We have the power to choose our beliefs. Our beliefs become our reality. So... We do have the ability to change our beliefs and therefore further hone our magical abilities and eventually change what we perceive as our quote-unquote external reality. But this is not something that we're taught by our society at large. And maybe that's why the witches were burnt at the stake, because they knew how to hone their magical craft and did not make good little conforming citizens that the powers that be so desperately wanted and still want to this day. I don't want to get too conspiracy theory-ish, but come on. Our system is built in a way that focuses on working for the machine of capitalism. And it does not work for the machine of cultivating our receptive, intuitive powers and magic. Okay, I'm stepping off of my soapbox. I am done. In other news, though. I did go on a sort of a rant about ghost hunters on the traditional current paranormal TV circuit, and I may have been too heavy-handed. I'd probably shit my pants and run in the opposite direction, too, if I called in an inhuman entity and it arrived. Let me just be real about that. Maybe not. Maybe if I had somebody like Stephanie facilitate that meeting, I could get through it without pooping myself. But my point was that I want to get better at that. I want to get better at learning how to not judge something that's radically different in form and energy than me. 
because that is where some of the most exciting magic happens. And that is where I want to be. You can check out what Stephanie is up to on her social media. And if you love Follow the Woo, you can support this podcast by becoming a patron on patreon.com. It's patreon.com slash follow the woo. And all of those links will be in the show notes per usual. Happy Mercury and retrograde humans. If you're trying to figure out your magical practices and you want to talk about it, you can always email me. You know where to find me. Okay. All right. Bye. Thank you for following the Woo with me today. If you love what you heard, please make sure to subscribe to Follow the Woo wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're feeling particularly stoked about this show, please leave a review and or rating. You can also support this podcast by becoming a member of The Order of Woo, where you'll get community access and loads of extra goodies exclusively on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash follow the woo. The Order of Woo patrons bolster this podcast and community and allow for the creation of more content, products, services, and events over time. Every little bit helps, and I'm so grateful for the patrons who have joined the order already. If you've experienced something magical, mystical, or just downright weird and want to discuss it, or if you're interested in sharing your expertise, or if you want me to research a woo topic with you or for you, please email me at followthewoo at gmail.com. Join me next week for another woo topic. And remember, tell the truth, be nice to each other, and if it feels right, 